Well, welcome to Leaders on the Frontier. My name is David Lease. I'm your proud host. And today is February 22nd, 2024, the year of our Lord. And we're uh, going to be talking about a very important uh, topic today that's related to prosperity in our Federation and including um, arguably federal policies undermining the prosperity and the future of not just Alberta, but frankly, other provinces as well. So we are delighted that you could join us uh, as an audience on both X and also on YouTube. Uh, we're really appreciative of, of your feedback and we're looking forward to it today. So today we're going to have a special guest and that is, of course, uh, the research uh, fellow at uh, the Frontier Centre for Public Policy, Lee Harding. Welcome, Lee. Hello, David. Well, Lee, it's great that uh, you could join us because you've come up with um, quite an interesting report about the topic that we're going to talk about, and that is, uh, you know, is is federal policy undermining uh, Alberta and and Albertans? So it's it's interesting. It's titled 12 Years of Labor in Alberta," and uh, you go through quite an analysis, and it's interesting. And and we'll kind of walk through the report step by step, but. Um, and there we've got it up on the screen, and you can see that on our website at the Frontier Center for Public Policy. Uh, so be sure to look at it. Um, but if you had to think of the headline, what does this report really mean? It's it's really quite an interesting read. But Lee, what what are we? What's really the headline here? Well, what I did was I looked over the last twelve years to see what labor statistics could show about the three political eras of the last 12 years. So starting with the Allison Redford progressive conservative government, and then also the stint that was under Jim Prentice, and then we shifted to an NDP term. And then after that, uh, since then, we've had the UCP government under Jason Kenney and now Danielle Smith. And so what I was really wanting to know is, uh, is the private sector moving faster than the public sector? That was the initial part of it. Um, that didn't seem to be as big an issue as it is in some other provinces and places. But what I found in other regards was uh, some interesting things and also fresh evidence that under the Trudeau Liberal government in Ottawa, Alberta has been falling behind, whereas previously it was outpacing the rest of the country. And I think that's probably the most significant finding. Okay, so you've You've really peeled the perennial onion. You've got at the facts, the evidence, the employment stats, and you've cut through all that noise and basically figured out that, wow, governance matters, who's in power matters, and those policies have a big big impact on Canadians and where you live. Is that it? Absolutely. Absolutely, David. That's precisely it. Okay, so when we look at this, um, we've we've got a lot of different eras. Is there a way to kind of summarize um, at a top level what what really are some of the highlights here? Like, for example, um, I mean, I think people would be kind of shocked or surprised. Like, Alberta is kind of a magnet for uh, people moving to Alberta for future prosperity. I think well over a, a hundred thousand people are moving to Alberta um, annually. But you, you said something, Alberta is underperforming. What do you mean by that? Well, if you look over the last 12 years in the rest of the country, the growth in the working age population is matched by the growth of employment. So that makes sense. I mean, we're talking people who are aged 15 to 64 uh, as the same percentage growth nationally. Uh, you see the same in both. But in Alberta, mm. it hasn't kept pace. And it's not entirely clear to me why that is. Um, one of the things that I found is that in the Prentice era, uh, we saw a real drop in oil prices. Uh, and that mm. obviously, uh, it's, it's such a cyclical industry that that just wipes out a lot of uh, the research and development in oil and the drilling. And there was a 50% increase in the unemployed males at that time. Mm -hmm. So from mm -hmm. if you look at the month of October 2011 to uh, seasonally adjusted to the month of uh, May of 2015, when Rachel Notley took the reins, uh, there is 50 percent higher male unemployment than there was before. And what I found is that never actually came back. Now, uh, because the population has grown over those years, 
the fact that there's the same number of male unemployed is probably represents modest growth in an ironic way, but uh, or progress, you might say. But really, though, in some ways, those jobs never came back. And so what we see over and over again is that uh, Alberta has relied on the energy sector. And and one of the ironies that I found is that in the Trudeau era, uh, wages have grown three times as fast in the rest of Canada as they did in Alberta, and also that the in wages overall and uh, the wages in the mining and energy and forestry sector combined uh, that they're growing three times as fast. So now that's total wages. That's not like uh, you know they're they're making. $25 here and they're making 75 later. No, this is the total, th this is the amount of all the wages that are paid because there's a statistic in, that uh, we keep nationally as to the total wages and salaries in any given sector, both in a province mm -hmm. and nationally. And so if you look at the growth rates, um, if you look at the comparison of the months of when these regimes started and ended, you see quite a contrast. And see in the in the PC era, when federally we had a conservative majority government, uh, Alberta was actually outpacing it. it was, the growth in um, total wages was 25% in Alberta and was 15 in the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's just the opposite now. Uh, Canada is outpacing Alberta. And I don't think it's really through, it's the, all of this is Alberta's fault. Uh, it was certainly much worse under the Notley government we saw some of uh, the stats actually contract where there was less money, even with population growth, there was uh, a drop in wages of more than 5% of the total wages that were paid out. So you have a lot more people coming in, you don't have many more jobs, and uh, you actually have less total wages paid out. So that's very, very poor performance. Oh. So, so it's kind of a surprise. So what would explain this um, when you mentioned about federal policies negatively impacting Alberta's um, economy? Can you give an example that would help us understand what's going on here? Well, a lot of it has to do with the energy sector. I mean, we're all familiar with the carbon tax and how that's discouraging the use of fossil fuels, which we have an abundance mm -hmm. really. And, and our total global emissions is only 1.6% of the total. So it's really not going to make much of a difference in global temperatures. And, and also, if the world warmed, Canada would be the winner. I think we'd all like it to be a little bit warmer. And the only place we <laughs> find these increased storms uh, as a clear connection to uh, carbon emissions is in their computer models. So that's mm -hmm. uh, even our recent for forest fire spell. Uh, there was a single arsonist that uh, set up a lot of them. And yet this is being mm -hmm. used as a narrative for climate change. But mm -hmm. uh, I've lost the trail a little bit. Could you repeat the question? Well, I mean, I, I think I guess what we're trying to get at is how is the federal government in terms of policies? Um, and I can list example after example. But what are the examples that are impacting uh, the province of Alberta. Well, all this bent towards net zero means a net zero for the economy. That's what it really means. Mm -hmm. it means okay. zero economic growth, zero new jobs. Um, you know, you can only recycle the public tax dollars so much to make these uh, renewable uh, windmills and, and solar panels and what have you. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if, if there was a real market for it, uh, the private sector would have been doing it already if it was actually practical. So right. we've seen policies where regulations have made it very difficult for pipelines to be built. Uh, even some of the resource projects themselves, uh, they've just said, you know, we just don't think we can do anything in the current environment. They've walked away from it. Mm. Um, the, uh, the northern coast of BC, that has been declared off limits for exports. So that was the only one that the government explicitly, uh, you know, the Northern Gateway Pipeline that, uh, you know, was not going to go. But the other ones, it's just basically been we have an environment that is so adverse that uh, you can't get anything done. And so mm -hmm. the government can say, well, we're not the ones standing in the way, but really they are. And uh, if we'd have had all the pipelines built, including Energy East, I mean, it would have been $25 billion of economic value. The jobs, I mean, right. the, the squandered opportunity is one of the worst things that this government is responsible for. Okay. So so part of your report 
certainly shows the kind of statistical uh, measures that are undermining Alberta's employment performance. So that has a big impact on, on people's income and their standard of living, their quality of life. But, you know, in, in many ways, this is not surprising given the kind of federal policies that you just cited where they're really strategically not enabling um, the oil and gas sector to be able to thrive by getting product to uh, tidewater, to oceans for export. And we're in a world, as you say, that desperately needs energy. So, you know, in many ways, that's not a surprise. But would there be lots of other examples where the federal government is really intruding, arguably, in provincial jurisdiction? When you look at, uh, for example, the, the whole, quote, clean electricity regulations that the federal government has introduced. I mean, we've heard a lot about that this last week where, um, you know, I think it was in January that the Alberta electricity grid was was um, was having difficulty meeting demands. And so if you'd introduce those, quote, uh, clean electricity uh, regulations, would that not also be another example, Lee, where that is just going to be more of the same type of policies that undermine uh, that province? Oh, absolutely. They're doubling down. There's no question that uh, they're continuing on a reckless path of destruction in the name of uh, they're they're destroying us in the name of saving the earth. And mm -hmm. it is a, a very serious problem. Uh, there were now with the carbon tax itself, the Supreme Court sided with the federal government to say they could do it. They said it's a carbon levy. It's not really a tax. So we won't call it a tax mm -hmm. in the environment. Of course, there's wide speculation that uh, if this was uh, about Quebec industry, that it would have been a different kind of answer from the Supreme Court of Canada. But be that as it may, uh, yeah, it, it is an intrusion. There were some judges who did say, yes, this is an intrusion. This is not constitutional for you to be uh, putting this carbon tax on because it, it's a tax on resources. Resources are provincial and you don't have the right to do that. But they are doing it. Mm -hmm. And uh, they found enough judges to agree with them that they're going to keep doing it and doing it more. And every April 1st, we see another $15 a ton now uh, mm -hmm. on carbon. And of course, they will have some rebates. And it's been demonstrated in various ways that these rebates aren't exact rebates. Even as Brad Wall said when he was still premier, uh, you know, if you're going to just rebate it back, why do it in the first place? Well, because mm -hmm. it serves as a disincentive to use the uh you know, to, to have uh, carbon consumption. But um, the problem is in a country like ours, we need it for everything. We need, we have a lot of resources and to get at those resources and get them to the world to make our world and the rest of the world a better place. We need uh -huh. to have roads. We need to have gas and diesel and uh, be able to move around. And now the government said, well, we're not going to fund any roads anymore either. And no, uh, sorry, that, which government has, has the, federal that, government, uh, the federal government, federal government, and government. Gibo, Gibo said, uh, the, uh, the environment minister that, uh, that they're just not going to fund them. So, uh, okay. well, that, that's, uh, uh, that's, that's very dangerous, um, to say that now, where's the money going to come from? I, I this, uh, are we going to have toll roads everywhere? Maybe that's the way we need mm -hmm. to go. If the government's not going to fund it, let's have users fund it. Uh, but, uh, it, yeah, it, you know, we have this wonderful resource in the ground and uh, it looks like we're just going to keep it there and everyone else who needs it, mm -hmm. they're not going to have it either. And now Charlie Angus of the NDP has brought in a bill basically to say that you cannot say anything positive about the fossil fuel industry or that's misinformation. If you say that one okay. form is uh, less damaging than another and this kind of thing, you can't even say that. So I don't think that bill's going to mm -hmm. pass because it's so ridiculous, but it does indicate the kind of environment that we're in that someone would even think of that. Yeah, and, and just to clarify, so this is the MP, Charl, uh, Charlie Angus, who's uh, introducing a private member's bill to um, censor and, and under penalty, if memory serves me correctly, I've not read the specific bill, but I understand its basic summary is to basically censor and uh, by penalty ban um, speech that would talk positively about oil and gas. No, it, it's really quite absurd. So I'm speaking with a um, research fellow with the Frontier Center for Public Policy, Lee Harding. And uh, Lee has tabled a report that just came out um, uh, earlier this week 
called 12 Years of Labor in Alberta, A Tale of Three Political Eras. So we'd welcome your questions and comments. What do you think? Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to uh, review the report, but basically the headline is that it reveals a lot of Alberta's economic challenges um, over these different political years, and including the Trudeau Liberal government era of policy. And this is not meant to be a, a partisan discussion, but it does seem to underline that who is in political power and the political policies that they pursue do matter in terms of our prosperity. Is that right, Lee? Yeah, that that's what it's come to. I mean, I let the stats speak for themselves. I didn't know what I would find. I mean, there are some things that Albertans knew intuitively that the Notley years were difficult for the energy industry, difficult for economic growth, and that uh, it has had some resurgence under a more business-friendly UCP governments. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, to see it statistically is just another matter entirely. And again, there were a few surprises. Um, you know, when so you look was, at the... What was this, a key surprise um, that you noticed as you were working on this report? Well, just the Canada was getting so f ahead uh, so much faster than Alberta was. And Alberta's the hmm. economic powerhouse of Canada, proportionally. Uh, okay. And to, to not have that is... Um, I mean, you don't want to kneecap the thing that's most important to you. You really don't want to be stunting mm -hmm. uh, what is best. It's sort of like benching Connor McDavid. It doesn't really make sense to do that if you actually want to win. Uh, yeah. And some of these other things like uh, the the uh, numbers but, but, of employed people for a falling I behind. Wanna, I don't want to bury that headline, Lee, because I think what you're saying is that energy, affordable, reliable um, uh, energy has been kind of an ace card for Canada's um, prosperity, let alone um, much of the of the world, uh, because that affects everything. Not not only in terms of heating our home, but in terms of the competitiveness of our manufacturing sectors, service economies, everything. So if you're kind of the, the federal government's intent, to be clear, is to shut down Canada's oil and gas sector. Well, so yes, and they're, this they're is not kneecapping. Pardon me. Yeah, well, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, yeah, that's exactly what they've said they're doing. They they want to transition us off of fossil fuels, net zero, mm -hmm. net zero. So, mm -hmm. yeah, um, th this is one of the reasons that the that the carbon tax rebates don't work because when you have a carbon tax on your gasoline, first of all, you need energy to produce anything, to heat anything, to to do anything, to go anywhere. So. If you handicap that, if you tax that and discourage that through taxation, what you'll end up happening is you'll you, you will have less GDP, period. You will have less mm. economic development. And even if you do accept the climate change narratives, it would be better to to face them in a position of economic strength than it would be from a position of weakness. Um, you know, if we need to have better buildings and this and that, uh, let's have them, you know, if we have the more wealth we do, the more we can actually prepare, you know, mm -hmm. the, the approach we're taking is uh, almost like uh, trying to change the weather outside instead of putting a coat on. I mean, let's be in a position mm -hmm. to do something for ourselves. But yes, uh, and with the carbon tax, what you see is, okay, we have a carbon tax in the gasoline and the diesel. And it goes up and up and up. Well, what happens? Well, that's going to go on to your food. When it goes mm -hmm. to the grocery store, as we take it yeah. from our fields and distribute it out to our cities. So does that get rebated back? No. And uh, mm -hmm. the government is is getting more revenues than ever because all of this really drives it up. So you can rebate the carbon tax, but it doesn't stop the inflation. And the more the inflation is, the more you collect your GST and your sales taxes and this mm -hmm. and that on a number mm -hmm. of things. Not, not all items, not all basic foods you wouldn't, but on a lot of other things. And so... Uh, one of the things in Saskatchewan, where I live, is the government said, well, we're, we're just, we have a Crown Corporation collecting it, uh, you know, Sask Energy, and we're just not going to give you the carbon tax. We're not going to charge our customers and they're not going to pay it. Well, all of a sudden, uh, we've got very favorable, uh, you know, manageable inflation rates here because mm -hmm. they, they cut this inflation out because you pay more in these carbon taxes than you do the actual portion of consumption. Yeah. 
So you're saying, um, Lee, that the decision then by the Scott Mole government to actually not collect that carbon tax anymore, and I think that started, was it of January 1? Is that correct? Yep. They said uh, starting this year, we're not going to collect it, and uh, and they haven't. Now, um, okay. it'll be an interesting legal challenge because at the end of the month, mm -hmm. they, that money is due. And if they haven't remitted it to the government, uh, they're in defiance of the law and federalized. Hmm. But the province says the legislation that we have made actually protects us from that. Um, okay. But, but, but clearly, that's an example because this isn't just about Alberta. This is, these are questions that impact every province, right? how federal policies are impacting the growth and prosperity of every province. So in, in Saskatchewan's case, you're saying that they actually made the decision not to collect that carbon tax as of January 1. So we'll see where that goes legally or how it's challenged. But the point is that that's moderated inflation. Um, and, and so that's actually coming out now within the lives of people who live in Saskatchewan. They're, they're seeing prices more reasonable. Is that is that what you're saying? Well, it's coming out in Statistics Canada reports, too. And this was just a, a few days ago where they specifically mentioned it. So, yes, I, I mean, even if it's just on the home heating, it's not on anything else. But you have to remember also the fuller context of this is in the Maritimes, they rely on heating oil. It's only 3% of Canadians that use heating oil, but you'll find 40% of them in Atlantic Canada. And Atlanta, Canada does not have that many people to warrant that. So they rely on it heavily. And the liberals, uh, you know, put their finger to the wind and saw which way it was blowing and said, oh, well, we're going to give you a reprieve for three years. We're not going to charge the carbon tax on you because it was coming due. They, they'd they allowed them to do their provincial plans. But as it was um, coming due, they couldn't, uh, you know, it, it, it was increasing. And so when it hit the next $15 per ton, they, they couldn't do it anymore. So uh, that was uh, that was not going to fly politically. And so they decided to exempt them. Now, if you look at the carbon emissions per uh, British thermal unit, so this is the carbon emissions per amount of heat produced by fuel oil versus natural gas, um, it's 50% more emissions for fuel oil. So if there was something to exempt, you should be exempting natural gas, not fuel oil. Well, for purely political reasons, they did that. And that's why the Saskatchewan government said, look, we know what you're doing. And uh, so we're not going to go by this. So uh, you should be giving us an exemption too. people have to heat their homes, period. There's no choice in that. And, and these electric right. heat pumps that they want them to turn to are not so reliable in the coldest of temperatures either. Yeah, it, it's it's a totally impractical uh, policy. Um, so I do have a question from the audience, and that is how is the growth of the public sector impacted uh employment okay um i can uh i can show that in a few different ways and uh, let's see if i can actually get this uh onto the screen now i'm not going to take too long doing this if if i can't then um then we won't do it um but i guess the question really let's is see. is the growth oh. of government uh changed the opportunities because i think that's a point that you do reference in the report is that and, and this is fascinating in alberta a key strength to its economy has been small business the growth of self-employed entrepreneurs and they're out there thriving uh but that's been diminished uh i think that's one of the, the key points that you make in the report is it not yeah uh, the self-employed uh, it has diminished for them and what uh, you see is the public sector employment has gobbled up what the self-employed had. There's only, in this 12-year period, we only have about 7,100 more self-employed people in our country of 40 million. We only have that many more than we did 12 years ago. So the population has grown a lot, but the self-employed has stayed static. What's really grown is the bureaucracy. And thankfully, Alberta both municipally and provincially, has shown great restraint. Uh, you know, it's had reasonable growth, not crazy growth in its bureaucracy. In the NDP hmm. government was actually the least growth, which only makes sense because when you have a private sector that's suffering so badly, it's not the time to go on a public spending spree and hiring spree. But, but hmm. the federal government has no shame. That's exactly what they're doing, and they're paying them much better. 
And so, okay, yeah. So, so you're saying that in the federal case, the the pro, the public sector has grown tremendously, and I'm I'm just trying to recall the numbers. You'd have to look at the the specific time reference, but we're talking. Um, this is represented, I believe, a significant part of the employment growth. And, and uh, Lee, I reference or refer to you in terms of those stats. I, I don't believe we can share the screen in this format, Lee. But what I do know is that the growth of the public sector has a big impact on the growth of the private sector, which is really the key to driving forward economic prosperity and ultimately your quality of life. Is that part of the, the point that your report is making? Well, you need to have, I mean, the the if you're relying on uh, the public sector more and more the public sector cannot feed itself you can't tax the public sector to uh, to employ the public sector unless you want to have a completely communist um regime uh mm-hmm. you know it's going to be the private sector that is growing that creates uh, the new products and services that increase the quality of life from which you can tax and then fund your programs and whatnot. Um, government is very hmm. bulky. Government overpays. Government does things that are not responsive to market signals. And whatever the okay. government does, it will do it less efficiently than the private sector, because that's just the way it will always be because of the nature of the beast. And so the more okay. that we see government doing, uh, oh, we did this, we did that. In the end, it's going to be bad for the economy. And it's going to be bad for people's standard of living and what they can do. And so what I found was in the Trudeau years, we saw uh, the total wages and salaries go up in the public sector by 70.3% in these 12 years. Uh, Can you repeat that? Federal 70% increase in the total pay to federal government employees. So this is this, this is not the, this excludes the military, but the actual federal government administration. So we're not necessarily talking um, crowns and whatnot but just the the pure federal civil service. Um, Provincially, in most of Canada, it went up 44% during that time. But in Alberta, it only went up 21% in those 12 years. Uh, Same thing, very close numbers to that municipally as well in both counts. So um, it it has, you know, there's been pretty good restraint in Alberta. They've they've kept that really as it should be. and but Ottawa has just taken a completely different tack. Uh, it happened under the first Trudeau, and it's happening again. Okay, so I'm talking to our audience uh, with uh, research um, uh, fellow Lee Harding about his report, 12 Years of Labor in Alberta. And so policy does matter. It has an impact on our lives. So when you think of the importance of this report, Lee, um, why does this matter to, to Canadians? Is there a quick answer to that? Well, yes. Uh, the federal government is biting the hand that feeds it. And uh, mm. it's going to turn this whole country into a, a disabled torso. Uh, because oh, we're, we're, we're pretty, killing what works. That's dramatic language, is it not, Lee? Sure. I'll give you some more if you want. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, but, but your look, point is, is what works. But, but is, this, this is a very serious threat to people's prosperity. That's what your point is, is it not? Yes, and the government knows what it's doing. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that they're that stupid to not realize what's happening. Um, but uh, maybe, maybe they are. I mean, I, I'm at a loss because it really does not add up. Um, mm-hmm. And. Uh, it, it the math of of the climate science doesn't add up. Uh, you know the the cost and benefit analysis of the worldwide climate change efforts. Um, mm-hmm. just, just before this recent uh, conference of the parties twenty six that they had in Dubai, there was a, a very in depth analysis that was done that said no, actually it's going to be worse for the economy because they're they're saying that if we do these punishing things. Uh, it's going to help because otherwise we'll have storms that are so bad it's going to wipe us out and that'll cause economic damage. But it, the best information says, no, it's, that's not the case. Okay. So I do have a question from the audience, and that is, what what should governments do? What, what I guess, what is the, what's the upshot here? Well, I think this net zero plan 
needs to be abandoned. Uh, it's not based on good evidence. It really isn't. Uh, there's a, a big money train uh, of people that are funding the science and then getting their big companies to get rebates from the government and, and projects from the government to do these things. It is another excuse for a wealth transfer uh, from the common people to elites. That's really what it is. And it's as we lose our collective uh, economic and, and political power, uh, it's just going to be concentrated more in the hands of a few and create a new kind of serfdom. And that's what I think the people that are, are above our national governments in their influence, in their money, in their power, in their objectives um really know that that's what this is and this is just a convenient trojan horse because no one for no good reason would say oh well let's just stop driving our cars now let's let's stop heating our homes let's stop you know it doesn't make sense uh let's not go anywhere you know no no let's not build any roads how could you mm -hmm. ever yeah. have a Canadian government suggest let's not build any roads? It's one thing to say that constitutionally, which is true, that this transportation stuff is a provincial responsibility. So as a federal government, we shouldn't be funding it. That argument mm -hmm. I can accept. But to say, oh, it's a good policy to not build any more roads. That is so dumb. All right. So I know we're speaking a little bit beyond the, the quote scope of the, the report here because you you know, the report is really based on a lot of statistical evidence to, to clearly demonstrate um, that governance matters, who's in power matters, and their policies matter on every one of us. But I think it's interesting that you're asking a larger question and making a, a larger statement that, um, you know, these policies could be very well intentional to um, almost strike a war against the middle class. Like if you look at affordability issues, that's a major concern. By the way, I noticed that that it just came out this week, um, the uh, information from uh, uh, Blacklock's uh, reporter, the, the media service, that uh, the federal government spends, what is it, some $1.6 million on three retreats to um, discuss actions to improve affordability for Canadians, ironically. Um, but in this context, I think a lot of Canadians are wondering, wow, it, it, you know, life has become increasingly less affordable. For a lot of people, they're very, you know, they're, they're struggling. I think another survey showed that some 60% of Canadians are really on the line financially. So um, you, you'd say that a lot of this is intentional. Now, that's certainly one viewpoint, Lee. Is another viewpoint that some of these parties actually believe in the efficacies of their policies and don't realize that they're really not linked or grounded in reality of, of the situation, or, or is it both? Well, that's what our, uh, Premier Smith said in her speech yesterday. She said it would be great to have a, quote, strategic partner, end quote, instead of a, quote, delusional adversary, end quote. Oh. Yes. That's what she called right. Ottawa. So it, it is delusional. Yeah. I am sure there are many people in university right now just learning politics because they knew nothing before. And now they're getting filled with the ideas that this is an absolute necessity because what economy can you have when we're all dead? But that's just okay. not well, what we're headed for. Well, I, I think maybe part of this is is grounded up by really a, a perverse economic theory uh we call it modern monetary theory i think it was uh, one of these um bad ideas that came out of france uh, an economist as i recall but basically that theory that kind of suggested that economic deficits uh don't matter uh in essence that that somehow the government can uh go on spending deficits uh at infinitum it, it's really uh uh, quite disturbing. And, and so within that context, like if you look at the amount of deficits and debt accumulated now by the federal government, it's more than every previous government combined in Canadian history. So the numbers really are stunning. So if you come at it from that kind of assumption that money doesn't affect grow on trees, and I know I'm, I'm being pretty crass about it, then I suppose you, you would kind of consider all these policies possible you can put the oil and gas sector out of business and you can just still chug along in terms of your economic future am i misreading that lee well 
let me address what you're saying in this way. I think that um, at some level, as I said, that this is a, a grab for wealth and power. And many of the agendas that we see going forth, um, whether they take what was it Karl Marx or was it Stalin that called these people useful idiots? The people that believe, believe the Marxist. Yes, the people that believe the Marxist lie, some of them believe it. There's a few people that want to remake the world in the image they think, which of course puts mm -hmm. them on top because they feel quite entitled to run this planet. Uh, they mm -hmm. want it to go the way that, that they want. And so through uh, various mechanisms and whatever World Economic Forum and this and that, they're influencing towards these ideas. And once you have enough funding of the research grants and uh, and this and that, and you get to say, oh, these climate deniers, we can't even give them five seconds of airtime because someone might believe them. And then then we won't do what we have to to save the earth and then the earth will be gone. You know, th this mm -hmm. whole th stupidity snowballs into uh, a size that is, you know, it, it, it does overtake us. Um, yeah, we need to have an economy that works. And uh, we had one that was working fine uh, before we had all of this distraction for these kinds of issues. And the other thing is, contrary to what Charlie Angus says, uh, we do have energy production that, and mining production, for that matter, that is very, as far as carbon emissions go and other environmental mm -hmm. aspects, very minimal, remarkably minimal. Mm -hmm. And what we should be doing yeah. is making sure we have more of it before the other guys who don't do these uh, environmental practices grab those okay. markets. We could be the winner and and win for the environment such as they see it um if they were consistent with their argumentation but now we have people like charlie angus saying oh you you shouldn't be allowed to say that he called his bill uh, a historic moment just like when tobacco uh companies were not allowed to say that tobacco didn't harm us he this is the same mm -hmm. thing with oil you cannot make these arguments like i'm making now so i i would be yeah. whatever fined or jailed um, you know, there are times that get so stupid and evil that, uh, you might as well just show that you don't belong and keep speaking. That's what I have to say. <laughs> well, it, it, it's certainly, um, you're giving us reality therapy, Lee, in terms of not just the, the stats here from your report, but also, um, what is the larger agenda going on? So audience, we'd love to hear your questions and comments about um, this discussion. Uh, if you have comments about the report, we'd love to hear it. Uh, this is an important report because it does underline that policy does matter. Who's in charge does matter. So if we look at this, um, at the report again, I guess one of the things that I found interesting is um, the whole question regarding um, certain eras, um, those in power in Alberta do, you know, have made a difference. So is there a shining star when you look at um, who has been in power? Is there an example where you can say, well, we need more of that type of government versus another? Well, uh, I think that what we see is uh, how not to do it, especially. Uh, the only thing that was good in the Notley government was that there wasn't a big growth in the, the pay and amounts in the actual provincial government. Oh. Uh, we have seen, and another thing that happened consistently through all of the governments was we had growth in the sector of agriculture and forestry and the like. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that, and mining. And so that is uh, another thing which, as this net zero stuff reaches beyond the low-hanging fruit of oil and gas, it is now trying to reach into agriculture to say, you can't have uh, too much nitrogen. Well, that, that mm. nitrogen is going to make the crops grow. So again, it, it's, uh, it's a, it, I don't want to call it a starvation plan, but you can easily see how when you do this sort of thing, it it, it is not good. And I mean, when we see mm -hmm. in Europe, the extreme examples of culling herds and uh, and this and that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's no wonder that the farmers, they, ha they have nothing to lose. That's why the no, farmers no, are in this if, if, if in terms of the audience, can you just clarify when you refer to Europe, what do you mean? Like what, what's going on there? Well, as I said, we have, uh, we have groups that like in some countries, uh, and I think it was Ireland. I'm scared to get into details because the, yeah. the headlines kind no, of blur. I'm, I'm, I'm there have been countries where what we have is people herds. who are 
they are calling herds of, of cattle in places saying that you just can't grow them because uh, the methane that they breathe out is going to uh, have too much, uh, too many night, too much methane and methane is a greenhouse gas more potent than wow. carbon. And so we cannot yeah. have that. Uh, and mm-hmm. then there are other things with fertilizers where they're wanting to limit the use uh in, in sri lanka there was pretty much a coup because the people said we we need to have conventional farming methods we cannot do this mm-hmm. without um chemical fertilizers so there uh you know it's only been a, a really populist uprising that has prevented this from going on the way that it it really could because they would just steamroll mm-hmm. all this stuff right over us uh, damn all the practicalities mm-hmm. right so you know, I think what you're what you're referring to are really important examples where, like in Sri Lanka, they were imposing a radical change in farming practices, including um, the taking away of of uh, fertilizers. Um, and there was an uprising. There was an overthrow of the government um, because people were so angry because there were food shortages and the you know the impacts on people's lives. So do you think in the case of Canada, I know they're introducing a lot of changes in agriculture as well. It's all part of this whole net zero program, the so-called just transition. Uh, That major bill was just passed in December. Uh, You know, there's a large public debate about that, or or dare I say the, the intention was to actually limit debate on that bill. Um, But it was passed by the, uh, the NDP Liberal government uh, federally, um, will that have a big impact on Canadian agriculture then from your perspective? Like, isn't it the same theme of these policies impacting our economy? Well, yeah, it is all the same thing and it leads us to the same uh, destructive ends. And mm-hmm. and so with agriculture, you know, the, they'd send out some things saying we have to, we're not saying you reduce the actual fertilizer amounts you just reduce the emissions from fertilizer well Mm -hmm. the 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 emissions the farming practices have changed a lot in the last 40 years and it has minimized emissions quite a bit already so the only way you can really trim that fat is to lower the amount of fertilizers themselves and uh, i'm not sure some of the bureaucrats in ottawa in agriculture know that quite well and maybe some of them don't uh, but you can't exactly. you can't do this uh, on a massive scale. You cannot reduce emissions without reducing fertilizers. What it comes down mm-hmm. to, whether they insist that they can or not. So now we know from all of the UN reports and everyone who's pushing this stuff that that is something they want to do. That they're trying to have mm-hmm. happen through this. And so you can yeah. imagine um, if you're well, boy, there's no better way to control the people than to control the food. This is what authoritarian yeah. governments do. So no, you I put it all right. together, you have, uh, you can't put the gas in the car, you can't have a car that burns gas, you can't have a road, we won't build it, uh, you can't have food, you can't grow it. I mean, what, do they think we're dumb? This is bad. Yeah. Are they dumb? No. Or, it's, or, or it's are they crazy like a series of dead-end policies. Um, so, Lee, I can hear the voice of uh, my friend, Dr. Dennis Muldry, the one of the founders of the Alberta Prosperity Institute, um, who would be saying, you know what, this just is further proof that our federal system is not working, that the federal government is keeps intruding into provincial jurisdiction. They're outside their constitutional lane, and they're aggressively pursuing um, a series of policies which are destructive for people's lives and the economy and our future. So is this the context? Is that the other context as well where Alberta, among other provinces, I'm thinking of Saskatchewan as as an example, because they really have similar, the the same issues among others, would not, like, why, why wouldn't any province seriously consider saying, if this isn't working, we need to pull a Quebec. We need to start pushing our powers forward. We need to assert our uh, provincial jurisdiction for the benefit of the people, not some Ottawa elite. Is that what's going on here as well? Uh, well, yeah, I, I mean, I know some Easterners that um, are conservatives that actually welcome 
these Western upstart movements because they think it's actually going to be good for Canada if the West can assert itself more. Uh, and, and also with Quebec, I mean, on our Supreme Court, under our constitution, nine of those three have, uh, sorry, three of those nine have to be from Quebec. Yes. So mm -hmm. you, you can pull a Quebec if you have only one quarter of the people, but one third of the judges. But if you're the West, um, or the Quebec, maybe, now I don't want to assume that a Quebec judge would decide against the West just because they're from Quebec. It's not like that. Mm -hmm. But let's say that mm -hmm. it was. There's only, you need a majority of five. Well, there's only six of them that aren't from Quebec. So, mm -hmm. you know, are, if you get, need to get a five out of six unless the, at least one of the Quebecers is on your side. So, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's uh, in some ways our our constitution is very good in its division of powers. But starting with Pierre Trudeau, there was a big vision to centralize things. And actually, I think it, in some ways it predates it back to the World War One era. But uh, our first 50 years were very low. It was no income taxes. Um, you know, we had strong families and we had faith and we had society. We had values. And those were enough for us to um, grow in our prosperity and, um, you know, settle the West. I mean boy, you're building a sod house. There's no, you know, they're almost taking us back to that though, where there's, you will be left with a sod house and no electricity and uh, yes. maybe have your horses plowing the land. <laughs> well, let's hope not. Um, but it is interesting that uh, this, these kinds of policies really do create a lot of friction, a lot of conflict within our federal system and uh, beg the question, well, is our federal system working? And, 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 you know, certainly within good public policy, we'd say a very important principle, many of them are at stake. One of which is that you want to empower people. Um, you want to create policy that empowers individuals to make their decisions well and move power and authority as close to the people as possible, whether that's through local government or the provincial government. And I think that's been a real strength of our federal system. And this is in contrast with the um, the way the United States has evolved, where too much uh, power and authority, way too much, uh, many would argue, is at the federal level. So it, it, it's almost like your observation is very important, uh, Lee, that a lot of power um, or a lot of efforts have been to centralize power in Canada. But we would say, well, that's that's really the wrong direction. You want to empower uh, the people and have as much power towards them, whether it's through the provincial level or the local government level. So I think that's that's an important observation. One of the things that the Americans have is they can bring forward a lot more citizen-initiated referenda questions. Mm -hmm. And um, in, in many ways, uh, although that kind of governmental system purportedly doesn't allow it, I find in many ways that the states have quite a bit of power. They don't tax nearly as much as their federal government. Uh, and uh, that's probably good for the states and bad for the feds. But uh, they do have citizens do have s some more controls than we would have here in Canada. Um, you yeah. know, we think about healthcare, where through the Canada Health Act, uh, the federal government has put its fingers through funding and and then, but with strings attached, actually with shackles, uh, and mm -hmm. that's prevented any kind of healthcare delivery that looks like the ones we have in Europe. And all we do is pride ourselves in it not being American. Um, meanwhile, we can buy health care for a dog or cat. We can't buy it for ourselves. We'll wait on a waiting list mm -hmm. until uh, uh, the way we get off the waiting list is we're dead. Uh, or we took a trip to Mexico to get that. Uh, you know, it's mm. uh, it, and now they're just going into dentistry. Uh, they destroyed. I mean, I'm hearing terrible things about a child care where it's really. Um, they just give a bunch of paperwork for the ones that uh, they're, you know, making do this government's uh, sponsored $10 a day daycare and um, some other, you know, it's, it's leading to some closing because they can't compete and it's actually lowering spaces. I mean, everything that this federal government has touched, uh, it's the non Midas touch. Instead of turning it to gold, it turns to stone. And wow. uh, it's really disturbing. And I mean, I would not be saying it. It wouldn't matter what the color of uh, government it was as terms of party colors. 
uh, if it weren't true, but it's just really, really hmm. bad. And it's been consistently yeah. bad for the last eight and a half years. Well, so as we look to citizens and um, even decision makers, what advice do you have in terms of actions that citizens or even decision makers could make given the reality that we have um, a lot of policies that are negatively impacting not just Alberta, but other provinces as well. Like what, do you have any advice in terms of that uh, set of actions, Lee? Well, I wish we could retable every pipeline application uh, and resource project application that got turned down and rubber stamp it and have it run like today. Hmm. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but that, that would not be possible. I remember uh, I knew someone who worked on the Trans Canada East application and it was 30,000 pages. And the mayor of Montreal says, well, I don't think these guys have done their homework. Like they have no, mm -hmm. this, this is completely clueless comment. Um, we do have a lot of environmental rigor. We had it before. I, I think we need an mm -hmm. omnibus, we need to change a government and we need an omnibus act, the omnibus reverse Trudeau act, where we would reverse everything that he did. And if there was any part mm -hmm. of it that we discover later might have been okay, we can reintroduce it, but let's let's get rid of it all. Uh, Trudeau wiped out most of what Harper did in, in one year. And uh, I think uh, there needs to be a change of government where the same is done. And we need to have provinces that um, extract the resources while we have them and uh, get them to the world before the world has been diluted into not using them anymore. Because if there is gonna be a net zero, uh, you know, one stage at 2030 and a, a fuller stage by 2050. This resource-based economy in this country is running out of time. We need to get it out there. And uh, if they're going to bulldoze us and, and bludgeon us and do whatever it takes to get to net zero by then, well, that's then. But for now, okay. let's get it out there. So a key thing would be for both decision makers and citizens to join hands to try to... Um, work resource projects forward uh, on that note i think of um well it's interesting I, I believe in the next quarter the trans mountain uh pipeline will be completed or come on stream i, I could be wrong on that exact time frame i think they had some um uh, minor challenges that they had to to get through so we'll wait and see hopefully that will come on stream um uh this next year for sure uh, but I believe that will uh, make an impact in terms of exporting more um, oil to to the market. And there's there's many other ones as well. But but the point is that citizens, though, also have a voice. So they have the ability to change course in terms of policy, a new government. Um, but they sh they citizens should be speaking up, shouldn't they, Lee? Well, they should. Uh... The thing that disturbs me the most is I, I think we have a we have a government now that if uh, urban Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver likes what they're doing and enough of Atlantic Canada and a smattering of major other Canadian cities with a lot of government employees and, and university educated people, if they like it, doesn't matter if the rest of us don't like it or do like it. So uh, I just hope that the people that... Um, you know, vote uh, for these governments by default that are doing making these bad decisions that they'd, you know, not do so or even have the courage to see that there's better alternatives. And uh, that's that is important. Um, but I think also there needs to be more uh, discussions on the civic level. And I, I I don't know what to say. I mean, a lot of us that see the world differently from what um this mainstream message seems to be uh, have a hard time changing that culture. I think a lot of it, a lot of that intervention probably needs to happen with student groups at universities and uh, and hiring departments there. I think that hmm. our academia is fueling a lot of this, and um, and once a person gets <laughs> indoctrinated, it's it's very it takes something very, very earth shattering for them to change your mind. Unfortunately, there's very mm. few open-minded wow. people. Uh, their opinions are pretty entrenched. And uh, much as I think people need to speak up and rise up and have more power than they think, I also think that there's some people that will not be convinced for any amount of facts. Uh, and um, 
and we have a, a, a corruption to the core that has reached into our institutions uh, globally and nationally, uh, it's mm -hmm. a good time to pray. Well, it, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a tough reality that you're uh, challenging us with, Lee. Um, it is interesting. I did notice this week the release of an interesting public opinion survey and report. I think it was from one of our sister think tanks called the uh, McDonald-Laurier Report. Well, Institute, pardon me, and they reported that um, in terms of public surveys, that by far most the majority of Canadians do not kind of buy the woke narrative. Now, it depends on any specific pro, um, uh, policy topic, but it's interesting that it seems like the evidence, and I think anecdotally we notice this as well in our own daily lives, that most Canadians don't really buy a lot of this kind of woke narrative. I, what I mean by that is kind of a cultural uh, Marxist perspective on um, uh, gender fluidity to all kinds of topics or kind of a, an extremism when it comes to um, environmental policy. So perhaps that gives us hope that if we can uh, speak up, that that will also give um, solace or some measure of accountability to those decision makers that are in office that they can move forward with confidence realizing the majority are with them and not with um, this small number but i think it is a significant challenge but perhaps that's a perspective that gives us a little bit of hope uh yeah i agree with you there uh i think that uh but those private voices need to have some kind of public presence that's why when you see things like mm -hmm. don't delete parents.ca and you have these petitions to say we support parents being told before that you start Listen. calling my male kid a she and whatever else uh, that you need to have that public face and there also needs to be a certain core of academics that uh, allow and that's why i think this diversity uh, you know the dei stuff uh, equity inclusion that is becoming a, a paradigm through which universities must interpret and act and do everything sure. is extremely dangerous is because it's an ideological takeover and it, it, it you know, it's really going to smother uh, a look at merit and, um, and it actually hmm. reinforces people defining people on the basis of race as much as any overt racism hmm. would. Indeed. Well, and, and Lee, it's interesting on that point. I mean, I think that's, we're, we're going beyond in some measure the, the report itself, but all these things are interrelated. So, if we had to think of practical action, then um, perhaps one of the the um, recommendations to premiers of of all provinces—it's not just Alberta, Saskatchewan, and others—that we give a hard look at our universities and ask ask ourselves why are we using taxpayers' money to fund hotbeds of indoctrination that are ultimately opposed to the development of our own province when we think of oil and gas. I mean, I. I do remember well, years ago, I think it was the University of Alberta giving an honorary doctorate to David Suzuki. And I think, well, you know, no offense to Dr. David Suzuki, but I can think of, um, uh, frankly, many more candidates that would have been deserving. And, and meanwhile, the irony is that the University of Alberta has been generously funded by a province founded in oil and gas, which Dr. Suzuki is intimately involved in shutting down. I mean, this is the paradox, is it not? Well, I, you're speaking to a larger problem. That is that um, what we have in society right now is a retrovirus. Uh, you, we have something more like an autoimmune disease. And so the, our immune system is supposed to uh, keep foreign things out of us so you keep the body healthy. And, but now we have an immune system. Our institutions are busy at work attacking its own self. That's why I say we're eating our own flesh. Uh, and um, and we're attacking our organs, and it's going to cause systemic failure and the death of Canada as we know it if it, it continues. Because, uh, yeah, uh, we we are feeding the institutions that will destroy us. Um, you know, when, when we take John A. McDonald's statue, when city halls vote to take John A. McDonald's statue down, just like they did in Regina, they're cutting down. Uh, the democratic foundation they they're they're in a tree house and they're chopping down the tree and uh i don't think they get that because when you don't have canada what do you have um you, the un right 
Well, well, well said, Lee, uh, and 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 certainly uh, Sir John A. Macdonald, uh, our great uh, founding prime minister, um, has an incredible his historical record of forming a nation. Um, I would suggest that without Sir John A. we would not have had the country of Canada. Um, and he saved tens of thousands of Aboriginal Canadians as they brought food uh, to save people from a very difficult uh, point of starvation on the on the plains. It was really a remarkable story. So I agree with you that we need to know our history. And, and those are very worrisome signs when people uh, take down those kinds of symbolic statues in remembrance of our history and they don't know our history so um i think well said lee but i did want to thank you for joining our conversation today lee and for your uh, research as you've tabled this report and i encourage people to look at it uh, to make sure they see it on the website uh, at the frontier center for public policy but thank you very much for your voice as um, you document the impact of these policies and for your courage and your leadership, Lee. Oh, thanks, David. You got a great thing going on with the show, and I thank you for letting me be a part of it today. Thank you, Lee. And so that brings to a conclusion. Our live chat today was pretty far-reaching. We thank you for your, your questions and your comments, and we welcome them. Uh, be sure to like uh, the program and share it with others. If you think it's important, if you think that the kind of prosperity and quality of life is important for our Canadian society, and along with democratic values and freedom, we encourage you to share it with others. And we welcome you to join our conversation. So on that note, I want to thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to our next conversation next week, every Thursday at the same time. And uh, we'll look forward to it. And in the meantime, I wish you a great week.